If you've got your Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. As we've been studying through this Old Testament book, we've come to see that the book of Nehemiah is about so much more than just building a wall, isn't it? I mean, we, we said it last week, we're, we're only halfway through the book and the wall's already done. So there's got to be more. There's more here. The rebuilding of the physical walls of Jerusalem represented the work of rebuilding that God was doing in his people. And that's a work that God continues to do even today. And for specifically for the people of Jerusalem, God is saying, these are my people. Right? That's what was evidenced last week when we were in chapter 7. He was talking about the genealogies and all of this, this just like 73 verses of names, of families. And he, we're, we're, we have to understand that this is God's way of saying, I know you. Imagine being a family in Jerusalem. Right? The walls are done. And now we're preparing for some big, big event, a big service. And they read the names of my ancestors. They read the names of your great, 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 great grandpa. God knows them. He knows my great, 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 great grandpa. He knows my great grandpa. He knows my father. He, God knows me. And that's what chapter 7 is illustrating. Not only does he know his people, he's taken care of them. That whole time, he's sustained them. Yes, there's been discipline. There's been judgment, but there's also restoration taking place. And God is continuing to make good on his promise to his people. His people were to be the ones who were going to make his name known to the world. And if I could just make this comment here, it's the same method for 2023. God's people take the message of the Lord to the world around them. We are the light to the world around us. Jesus himself in the famous passage says, go into all the world and do what? He says, baptize and teach and disciple. Why? How? Because I have all authority. It's been given to me and now in that authority you go. And so we see in Nehemiah, God knows his people We see that God cares for his people, and we see that God is with his people, and we see a great evidence of this in Nehemiah chapter 8. After the completion of the walls and after the people of God are identified, right? he's checking the list, now they come together for something. What do they all get together for? The text says, we'll read it in just a moment, as one man, so all together, one group, they come together to do something. What is it? If you would, if you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning, and you'll see why as we read. We're only going to read 12 verses, though. So we'll stand and we'll read, and then you stay standing while I pray, and then we'll sit down and continue on. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seven month. And he read from it 
facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkai, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Meshael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mashalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Meseh, I'm sure I butchered that one, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink some wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the, Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray. Simply, Lord, may we also today understand the words that you are declaring to us. Whatever wisdom we think we have, Lord, it pales by far, in comparison to what the Spirit needs to teach us. And so we pray that your Spirit is upon us, and that on this day of resurrection that we celebrate, Lord, maybe our hearts would also be resurrected. In your name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I want you to consider uh, your own life for just a moment. Have you ever... Um, have you ever done something, spent days, weeks, maybe even months or possibly even years on a particular project? Think, think through it. Now, undoubtedly, there's some, some honeydew lists that are maybe years old at home. Uh, don't think about those. Um, but there's, there's, there's stuff that we do that takes time, right? Um, my parents, when I was growing up, well, even still to this day, they have a really large deck attached to their house. And it's up on the second story. It's second story deck. And it's, it's big and it's long. And for the first several years that we lived there, the, underneath that deck, there was dirt that was stacked up and then sloped away from the foundation all the way out kind of to the end of the deck. So we're talking up next to the foundation, six, seven feet tall, 
of dirt, and then it slopes out a good 15, 20 feet, okay? And everything was great. At some point in my childhood, my parents decided we needed to move that dirt. And so, I don't remember how long it took, but uh, I remember the blisters from the shovel handle. I remember the countless wheelbarrow loads of dirt going around the house to a big pile in the backyard. Uh, I remember being very familiar with my shovel that summer. I don't think I named it, but I was familiar with it. And we moved it to a big dirt pile on the other side of the house, and we finally finished that project, and there was great rejoicing. And then a couple of years later, guess what? We had to move that dirt pile again. I don't honestly know where that dirt pile is today. It's not there. But that's the running joke in the Omis house is, is moving dirt. And we were working with our kids in the garden this couple, last couple of weeks and we were shoveling and they've all, uh, was it for Easter they got? For Easter several years ago, we got our kids shovels. Kid size, not the plastic sand shovels, like legit metal shovels because we use them a lot. And the other day we were using them and we said, guys, you work really hard and we're going to get you ice cream at the end. We're going to go and we're going to get some ice cream. And we kind of motivated them with that. When I was moving the dirt, I'm sure my parents gave us some motivation, but I can tell you one thing. What the Israelites or the, the people of Jerusalem did at the end of building the wall was not something I asked for. Probably not something that you've asked for either. Because when all was said and done, they all got together in one place and what did they do? They didn't eat ice cream. Basically, they had their pastor read the Bible to them. (laughs) Literally, it says they came together and they asked Ezra, the, the word's a little more forceful than that. They almost demand Ezra to come and to read the book. Now, there's there's more that's going on here that I want to kind of dig into because it's helpful in understanding why they would do this because it doesn't seem like a normal thing for us. Ezra was this, he's listed as a scribe here. He was a priest. He'd come from Persia years before and he had helped Zerubbabel and they had helped reestablish and rebuild the temple. That was in Jerusalem. Now that's there, that's functioning, it's going on. It's not anything like what it used to be, but it's there. Ezra was a guy who loved, he absolutely loved the word of God. In fact, if if you're in Nehemiah, you can flip back a a, a book to Ezra and go to chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This guy, Ezra, made it his life's goal to study God's word, to put it into practice himself, and then to teach it to others. And so he he knew and had taught what the law said. And that's why they came. They said, read the law to us. Here's, here's a part of what the law said. And these, this is in your notes. If you've got your Bible and your fast, you can turn to Deuteronomy 31, verse 10. But here's part of the law that surely the people remembered. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, 
when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going, going over the Jordan to possess. So picture this with me. In your minds, the people have just worked tirelessly 52 days. It took them to rebuild the walls. That's not a lot of time. And so they must have been working hard, really around the clock. If you remember, they set up guards all the time. They were working feverishly to finish this wall 52 days. And the first thing that they do when they finish is not ask for vacation time or ice cream. They don't. They ask for the word of God to be read to them. Now, I think that we should recognize the completion of the wall coinciding with the festival of booths, or your version might say festival of tabernacles or feast of tabernacles. This is not a coincidence that these things coincided with one another. I think the people understand this too. And now that they're safe from their enemies with the the walls built, and now that they're free to worship the Lord as they desire to, the right way, all those things are set in place. So now they want the word of God to direct their lives. Consider that for just a moment. All this work is done, and they want God's word to direct their lives. That's what's going on. It's They don't want fear to drive them. They don't want personal preference to drive them. They want the word of God to direct their lives. And this illustrates a wonderful and likewise convicting truth. And it's this. God's people love God's word. God's people love his word. So he mentions the book of the law of Moses. Nehemiah mentions that in these first couple of verses. He's talking about the Torah, what we would maybe call the Pentateuch. It's basically the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? I think that was five. That's called the law. This was The law was central to life in Jerusalem. The first thing they did when they got together was read it. Right? It was central to life. It was central to the life of God's people, both the leaders themselves and the people, they recognize that they need what God's word has to say. Do we recognize that we need what God's word has to say? Because see, the people ask for it. They want it. But notice something else here. And you can see this in uh, verse 1. It says they told Ezra, right? They kind of commanded him, hey, we want you to do this, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So they, they, they recognized that it wasn't simply Moses' ideas, right? Moses didn't come up with this stuff. This was given to Moses by the Lord. God had commanded it of them. The Lord had given it to Israel, And these were his very words. They were the words that he had given to those great, 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 great grandpas that were on the list. Right? To the great grandpas, to the, to the grandpas, to the fathers, to their families. This was the same law. It hasn't changed. 
And they say we need this kind of thing. And it illustrates the second point this morning, that God's word is central to the life of his people. Not only do God's people love his word, but it's central to their lives. You remember from uh, Deuteronomy 31 that we just read just a moment ago? Who was it that was supposed to be there to hear the reading of God's word together? Can we list them? I'll start it. It was the men, the women, the children. Who else? One more. Sojourners or foreigners or visitors. So think about that. The people of God are all together. Every man, every woman, every child, and even the people visiting are, hey, let's go. We're going to go listen to the word of God be read. This is a big deal for us. The, the city shuts down. There's no commerce on this day. Nobody's buying and trading. Nobody's harvesting or reaping. They're all together listening, standing for hours at a time to the word of God being read. Notice that it's, it's not just the women and children. or It's not just the men and the women. I'm sorry. There's children included in this too. And I, I just want to point out that this is one of the, the primary reasons why you see so many families worshiping together here. We don't send our kids away somewhere else because we see that there's value in having the family together. Everyone listening to the word of God together. Now, there's a time for learning in age-graded things and studying the Word of God together, but I hope that we're convinced that there's value in learning about God together as a family, too. I mean, is it messy? Yeah. I mean, literally, it's messy sometimes. Okay? Um, is it is it challenging? For sure. Are there Sundays when you as a parent with little ones are chasing them around and cleaning up messes and trying to keep them quiet, and you think to yourself, why am I even here at all? You can admit it. It's okay. Yeah, of course, there are those moments. But if you need convincing that it's still worth it, I hope that you'll be convinced by the Word of God here this morning. It is worth it. It is good. It's good and right for families to listen to the reading and teaching of God's Word Together, we believe that and we try to practice it here because children are young, but that doesn't mean they don't understand. You stick a kid in front of Bluey, you know what I'm talking about, the TV show Bluey, at two years old, and within a couple of episodes, they're going to be repeating some of those phrases, maybe three. It doesn't take them long to understand and comprehend and be able to regurgitate some of that information. So why would we then stick them somewhere else and say, well, they can't get this? No. The gospel is simple. It's for childlike faith, right? And so we discussed a couple of weeks ago at our child dedication time together that we as the church and we as parents and families, we want to partner together to see our kids discipled and trained up in the way they should go. So in that mindset, we can overlook a bit of messy carpet, can't we? Maybe some rips on the chairs. We can overlook these things. We can actually not be distracted by the sounds of the little ones who are in the rows around us. Because we should. We should see our kids, the kids in our community, in our church, as a mission field. Right here in front of us. And we should participate together in forming and training 
and explaining the word of God to them. And if you jump ahead, if you glance forward at verse 8, that's what happens. Believe it or not, that's what happens. The priests begin to help the people understand what they're hearing, and it would have been kids there with them. Now let's kind of go back to verses 3 and 4, and let's move a little quicker now. Uh, those verses 3 and 4, they say that Ezra stood on a platform so that everyone could hear the book of the law being read. Uh, I don't think they whipped that up in the day. I think that that was part of the wall plans. We're going to build this pedestal, this wooden platform, for the priests to come and to read the book of the law together on these special occasions. It was built into their lifestyle. And so they had this all set up. And he reads from it for how long? We don't know specific times, but from early morning until midday. We're talking five or six hours. And when he opened the book of the law, what did the people do? They stood up. They stood up. And and I don't understand how that all works. I don't know if it was sunny and they were getting water passed around. I don't know how it all works. But Ezra read the book of the law and the people stood. And I think that's pretty impressive that Ezra was reading for that long, that the people were standing for that long, but I think there's something even more impressive here, kind of buried in verse 3, and it's this. While they're standing, while he's reading, the ears of all the people were attentive for that long. While they're standing, possibly in the sun. That's the impressive part to me. That the, that everyone's ears were attentive. And I just, I think I need to say this in this discussion too. Only people who have been genuinely moved by the Spirit of God will be attentive to the Word of God, especially for lengthy periods of time. You, you have to be moved by the Lord or you're not going to be doing, doing that. And so we're seeing the, the rumblings of something that all of chapters one through seven has been preparing the people for. Jason mentioned it, revival is coming. And we see that it's the hand of God that's working in his people to prepare them for this kind of thing. Now, don't get me wrong. Are there times when, uh, you know, a quick word of explanation is, is preferred for biblical things? Yes, that, that, that's true. But I just want us to see that there's also, from the text, times when extensive reading and studying is called for. And needed. And so Ezra stands and he reads for hours. And on the stage, I'm not going to read all the names again, but there's like 13 guys that are up there with him. And you think, well, what are these guys up there with him for? I think there's some practical reasons. Uh, Ezra did not have a pocket size, you know, small print Bible that he's reading from. So he's probably got big scrolls that he's reading from, and practically these guys are probably assisting him with moving those around for him to read. Maybe they're giving him glasses of water to drink. They're helping uh, with some of those practical things. But I think it also showed something, something deeper, and it was just unity of spirit. It was camaraderie. It was, they were saying by standing up there with him, they're saying, we agree with what this is saying, with what he's doing, with what the word of God means for us. They were in agreement with it. In verse 5, if you glance there too, the people also were in agreement with him, with what was going on. When Ezra opens the book, they stand out of reverence. They recognize this was an important moment. 
Now, I don't think this is prescriptive, whereas like every time the Bible is read, you have to stand. I don't know that we need to go that far with it. But I want us to see here, because we're going to see it a couple more times in this story, how, how our posture often reflects the condition of our heart. Okay? And so they're, they're sitting, obviously, and then when the word of God begins to be read, they stand up out of reverence. Their physical posture was reflecting something that was going on in their heart. And it's not the last time, because if you look in verse 6, their posture changes. After they've stood and the law is being read, it says they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Their posture, uh, plus the meaning of the word worship here, both give the idea of like when royalty comes by and you bow down in honor of them. That's the idea here. The people are bowing down in honor of the Lord because his word that's being read is worth it. It's worthy of it. They bowed out of fear and reverence for the Lord and his word. And their posture, again, was, was reflecting the condition of their heart. And their hearts were being moved by the presence of God and the word of, as Nehemiah says, the great God. That's how he describes it here. This is so... Everybody take a deep breath. Imagine the scene still with us. Ezra stands and he begins to read the law. The people also are standing. Now their countenance is changing. Um, I just think about that. I think about how they've moved from sitting to standing to bowing. And again, I'm not suggesting that this is prescriptive, like we should we should kneel or anything like that during worship. Um, uh, are these wrong uh, expressions of worship? Absolutely not. And yet I don't think we're forced to do that by the text here. Uh, but I think what they do is they illustrate for us the powerful effect that the word of God has on his people. That's, that's I think, what, what we need to understand from this. Uh, just think about the last time you were at a sporting event. And it could be a Clopton basketball game or it could be a Blues game or a, a Cardinals game. Think about the last time. Was it like silent in these places when you go? No. No, when you go, people are excited. They're jumping out of their chair in excitement because they're involved in the game and sometimes they even yell a little bit. Hopefully not in anger. But we're moved to do that. We're moved to jump out of our seat and exclaim during exciting parts of sporting events because we care deeply about what's going on and we feel like we're a part of it to some degree. Should we not also care deeply about the words of God and be moved by what it says? If we believe that his word gives life, that basketball game doesn't give life, but God's word does. Guys, we are more connected to the Lord and to his word than any game than we could visit and watch. Now, don't get me wrong. Enjoy the game. Stand up. Shout for your team in a Christ-like way. <laughs> but never forget that there's a spirit amongst the people of God that's more real and more lasting than anything you'll ever experience at a Blues game or any other game. People of God in Jerusalem, they seem to understand the weight of what was happening here in, ver in chapter 8, and their response shows it. Now, look at verses 7 and 8 with me. 
These verses go on to explain the reason why the people understood things the way they did. Because verse 7 says, the Levites helped them understand the law. Uh, verse 8, that was verse 7. Verse 8 says, they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Praise God for leaders who labor in explaining his word for our understanding, for our Sunday school teachers, for our small group leaders, for our pastors and elders and deacons and, and leaders who are explaining, for you parents who are explaining the word of God so that we can understand it, so that your children can understand it. Good leaders serve people so that they can understand the word of God. And when you see a leader who's doing that, thank God for them. Now look at verses 9 and then also 11. I think we see here another change in the people's posture and in their response. Verse 9 says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse 11 says uh, that they were grieved at the end of that verse. The, the Levites had to calm the people because they were grieved. Now as the word of God was read to the people from that wooden platform, right, that Ezra's sitting there standing up for hours reading, they began to understand the weight of God's holiness, but I also think they began to understand how far they'd fallen. And it affected them. It bothered them, and they began to weep. And I wonder, have you ever read a portion of Scripture, or maybe it was pointed out to you in a sermon or a, a podcast or just by a friend, have you ever seen a part of God's Word and it affected you like that? I'm not saying you're wrong if you haven't, but if you have, you understand. You see that there's weight, there's a, there's a reverence that comes with what God says, and when we see how much we don't measure up to it, it breaks us. And I think it should break us. And it, it was breaking the people in Jerusalem. They were weeping and they were grieving, and it can feel crushing at times to see that gap, right, between the holiness of God that never changes. Jason said last week he will never compromise his holiness. We don't want him to. But we see the gap between that and our fallenness. And it it overwhelms us at times. There's a time for weeping. Ecclesiastes 3 says this. But that wasn't today. It's interesting there's a time for that, and we're going to get there in the text in a few weeks. But Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levite priests, they come, look at verse 9, and basically they say, guys, today's not the day for that. It will be a day for that, but not today. What do they tell them to do? They say, go on your way. They say an interesting phrase. They say, eat the fat and drink the wine. This is basically like, have a party. Bust out the good stuff. And rejoice, don't, don't grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So according to the instructions given to their forefathers years ago, now is not a time to mourn, but a time to rejoice, to celebrate. Look at verse 12. This tells us that the people listened, and they responded as they should. They celebrated with gladness. And I, I, I want to call our minds back, if you've been with us. Back in chapter 5, there was kind of this like aside. They didn't talk about the building of the wall at all. Nehemiah was, was basically correcting the Jews who were not taking care of one another. 
who were charging exorbitant amount of interest and not being fair. And he says, cut it out. Stop doing that. Take care of one another. And it looks like the people are getting it because that starts to happen here. Right in, in verse 12, he says, take some to people who don't have it, who aren't ready for this. Give it to them. Share with others who don't have. Give thanks. Celebrate together. You're one people. So postpone the weeping. It, it will be a time for that, but postpone it for now. Don't grieve. And he tells us, he tells them why in verse 10. You can see it with me. He says, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. What is he talking about? What the joy of the Lord? What is that? Well, this phrase, I mean, it's, it's talking about Yahweh's joy. It's talking about the Lord's good pleasure. God's gladness is what he says. That's to be our strength. So what brings the Lord joy? That's the question that, that my mind went to. What brings God joy? What has made him glad? And I just think back to just the book of Nehemiah so far. Consider some of the things that we've seen. We've seen someone who swayed the heart of the king to send Ezra years before with everything needed to rebuild the temple. Someone swayed the heart of the king to send Nehemiah, the beginning of this book, with everything that he needed to complete the rebuilding of the walls of the city and hang the gates back up. Who has protected them this whole time from the threats from the outside and from dissension from within side? Who's done it? Who has brought them back to their most important city? The answer is obvious, right? It's God. God has brought them to this point. He's brought them together and it shows that God, God's good pleasure is for his people. He has taken delight in restoring them to this land. Now, please don't under, misunderstand me. God does not need us to be happy. It's not like he isn't complete until we're with him. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God takes special delight in those who are his. Think back to, to Jesus' prayer in John 17 that Caleb read at the beginning of our service together. Jesus' prayer was for his people. And he said, everyone who has, God has given, the Father has given to me will always be mine. They'll always be the Father's. So what then is supposed to be their strength? Well, God's joy in saving his people, in restoring and protecting his people. So I've said this a couple of times now. I've said God knows his people, right? That was the genealogy from chapter 7. God knows his people. God cares for his people. God is always with his people, and he's shown that by the giving of his word. Here we can add something new to that list, and it's this. God delights in his people. More specifically, God delights in those who put their faith in Jesus. Because he is the only way. Now, who, who is Jesus? Well, he's the reason why we measure time like we do. I don't know if you knew that. A.D. does not mean after death. It means in the year of our Lord. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means in the year of our Lord. History is measured by the life of Jesus, by the person of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. He's the reason why Christians around the world, even in countries where it's illegal to do this kind of thing, Christians still get together and worship. 
It's also the reason why we worship on Sundays now, the first day of the week and the day when Christ was raised. He's also the reason why a person can give up everything in this life and still be content and can still be happy and full of joy. And he's the reason why Easter matters. Jesus is the reason why the, resur- why the resurrection matters. Because see, if Jesus was just another guy, even though as good as he was, if he was just another man, he would still be dead. You could go to his, his grave in Israel and you could stand beside his grave where his body is. If he was just another man, he would still be dead. He would still be in the ground. And if Jesus has not risen from the grave, then Paul aptly says, then we are still in our sins. And if Jesus has not saved his people from their sins, then Paul says, your faith is useless. Now that's, that's kind of abrupt, isn't it? To hear on Easter that if Jesus has not been raised, your faith is useless, and yet that's what the Bible says. And so we're hanging everything on who Jesus is. But the world and history testifies to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth did in fact live, die, and was raised again, all according to the scriptures. John chapter 1 tells us that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He also says in that chapter in verses 12 and 13, some incredible news that we need to hear on this Easter Sunday. It's this. He says, to all who receive him, who believe on his name, he gives the right to become the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they're born of God. Amazingly enough, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God expresses his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's really good news because if you're anything like me, at some point in your life, you've tried to be good enough for God. Or maybe you're there thinking, I can be good enough for God. I can do it. I can do enough good deeds to outweigh my, my bad deeds and everything will work out fine. Might I just encourage you that you don't even have to go down that road mentally because these verses that we just read says that God's love was expressed to you in the fact that Christ died even while you were in your sin. You don't have to be good enough. You can never be good enough because Jesus is. And all it takes for us to be saved is to put our faith in him His death wasn't the end. I mean, how could it be? The author of life can't stay dead. Romans 5, 10 and 11 says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That is a beautiful word in Scripture, reconciliation. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one who reconciles sinners to the Father by his life, death, resurrection, and intercession. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He is the Word made flesh. And so... 
Therefore, use the biblical term, therefore, faith in him is not wasted faith. It's not. Because he is who he claimed to be. Who millions of people throughout thousands of years testify him to be. Do you testify along with them? Do you testify to believing in this Jesus? Because here's the last note uh, blank in your notes. It's this. God's people receive the word with joy. So consider another question this morning. Have you received Jesus with joy? God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son. And that whoever believes, even you, regardless of your past, that even you, whoever believes, would not perish, but would have everlasting eternal life. Never separated from the Father. Believer, if you're here this morning and you're celebrating the resurrection of our risen Savior, let me ask you this question. Do you receive God's word now with joy also? Don't get me wrong. I realize there are parts of Scripture that are hard. There are parts of Scripture that you read and you kind of suck air in through your teeth. You know what I'm saying? Like, ah, I don't like that. I get it. And yet, if God's word is central to our lives, like it was for the people in Jerusalem... If, God, if, if God's people love his word, then we should receive it with joy. And I hope and pray that today you receive him with joy. I'm going to pray and, and end our time together. The worship team is going to come up and we'll sing one final song of reflection. As we do, as we sing together, I'd encourage you, take a moment, pray. If the spirit is moving in your heart and you're saying, Man, I don't know that I've received the word. I don't know that I've trusted in Christ. I'll be standing right here. I would love to talk with you more. Even after we're wrapped up, come and grab me and we'll go and we'll talk more. Because if we're celebrating a resurrected Savior today, we also want to celebrate the resurrection He can make in our lives. Because if He has raised from the dead, then we also have that same hope. Let's pray. Oh God, what a day to receive your word with joy. What a day to consider all that Jesus is and has done and has said and to be moved by it, to be transformed by it, to be resurrected by it. And so, Lord, as we see from the people of Jerusalem that they received your word with joy, they asked for it, they pleaded for it, and then their their own uh, their own bodies and uh, attitudes changed in light of it. Lord, they went from sitting to standing to bowing to weeping to celebrating. Lord, may we also, in your timing, respond appropriately. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move hearts today, not by what I've said, but by the truth and the glory and the joy of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is all that we need. In Christ's name I pray, amen.